Entry Level is on a mission to reskill 1 billion people by 2030. This is an audio series to give you the day in a life and insider insights into the most in-demand jobs. Hey everyone, for this audio snippet, we're going to be exploring the wonderful world of blockchain engineering. And I have my guest here, Lung, who is working at REN Project. I would love to just start off with, tell me the story of how you got into this field and were you studying at the time? You know, did you have any qualifications? Like just tell, give me that background story. Yeah, sure. So I met a guy named Ty at a startup that I'd been working at while I was working at university. So it was kind of like a part-time job, part-time uni. And then I took it on as a full-time job along with part-time uni, which was a lot of hours and yeah, very busy. And then me and Ty eventually left that startup together and decided to start our own development studio. So we got some experience running a, a small team, like three, four people and servicing all sorts of different clients for different kinds of projects, mostly building websites, building some big data infrastructure, hosting infrastructure, things like this. And then after a little while, uh, I decided that I wanted to go back to uni, continue doing more research on my specialty, which was at the time, supercomputers and distributed systems, which is kind of fortuitous given that that's kind of what a blockchain is. And then a few, I suppose a few months later, Ty reached out to me and said that he had been exploring the blockchain space and was super interested in some of the stuff that was possible there and some of the opportunities there. So we put our heads together and you know decided that we wanted to go into this space. And we came up with an idea, started doing some fundraising, put a small team together. The fundraiser, raising of funds rather, went very successfully into where we expand the team. And here we are, I think almost four years later now. Yeah, awesome. And for those who don't know, we said that, you know, supercomputing distributed systems is basically what a blockchain is. But I'm sure many people who are exploring this field have probably just heard of Bitcoin and heard of crypto and like, you know, don't know much about blockchain at all. Can you give us a quick like 30 seconds feel as to like what blockchain is? And I guess perhaps even like what is the difference between a regular software engineer and, and like what makes a blockchain engineer so unique? Sure. So blockchain is basically a database, but it's a special kind of database where anyone can contribute to powering it and everyone can reach consensus about what's allowed to go into the database under what conditions and what's allowed to be removed from the database under what conditions and what's allowed to change inside that database under what conditions. And we can achieve consensus on this without having to trust one another. We can do it even if we don't trust one another. So a bunch of strangers from all over the, the world, denizens of the internet can kind of get together, power this database and away they go. I mean, that turns out to be particularly useful for some applications such as uh, you know, money systems that don't have a government backing them. But at the core, that's that's all the technology is. And so when I say that a blockchain is essentially a, a database, sorry, essentially a distributed system or a supercomputer, that's because this database is being powered by independent people all around the world running their own machines. So that's what makes it distributed. And they're very reminiscent of supercomputers in the sense that all of their compute power is generally limited by the bandwidth of these machines being able to communicate with each other. So, you know, if you've got 10,000 people contributing compute power to this thing, you've essentially got 10,000, maybe 40,000 CPUs all crunching away, but their bandwidth or how much they can get done is, is fundamentally limited by how quickly they can communicate with each other. Yeah, awesome. I'd like you to try again and explain it to me like I'm five this time and without using the words database consensus, I want to see if you can explain it that way as well. Do you have some jelly beans? And your kindergarten friend has some jelly beans and other people in the kindergarten, kindergarten class also have some jelly beans. Um, and you don't trust anyone to keep track of how many jelly beans you should have. Um, and no one else trusts you to correctly report how many jelly beans you've given away. So a blockchain is a way for you all to keep track of how many jelly beans you each have without necessarily having to trust each other, to be honest. Yeah, awesome. I love the analogy. That was really good. <laughs> and I was just sort of cognizant of the fact that, you know, many people might not know what a database is or what consensus is. So that totally makes sense. It's just instead of having a third party keeping track of what you have, you have 
uh, a group of like perhaps 10,000 people keeping track of what everyone has. And, and therefore, you can't really cheat the system because it's not bribing one person. You have to get most people of that 10,000 to work with you in that illicit activity, essentially, right? That's basically it. Awesome. And then let's dive into, as part of the differentiating between software engineer and a blockchain engineer, can you give us like the, like, what does it mean to be a blockchain engineer? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think the, some of the fundamental skills aren't really that different. The space is still so nascent that it's, it's actually very hard to find someone that I would refer to as a blockchain engineer. I think the biggest differentiator is not so much what you know going into the job, but more what you do on a day basis and the things that you have to worry about a bit more than the traditional software engineer and the things you have to worry about less than the traditional software engineer. So to make that kind of concrete, a typical software engineer, when they're uh, building a service and they're putting it out there for the public to use, one of the things they have to think about is the availability of that that product. How are you going to keep it online? What happens when 10,000 people try to access it simultaneously? What happens if someone tries to DDoS you? You know, this is a very low level thing that you have to think about, but you do have to think about it. Um, How do you keep your service up and available? I think we've all had experiences where you go to a website and it's for whatever reason, it can't be accessed. On the blockchain, you basically don't have to worry about that. You write your code, you put it on the blockchain and away you go. Because it's being hosted on 10,000 machines all around the world, the chance of it not being available to someone basically zero. So that concern is lifted. On the other hand, you have to worry about the fact that anyone can access your code and that once your code is there, you have very little, if any, control over the ability to update it, the ability to fix problems in it. And so you have to be really, really stringent about the appearance of bugs. And so in your traditional sort of product cycles, there's this like, you know, mantra of move fast and break things, especially in startups, where you ship the minimum viable product, you get it out there and it's going to be shit and it's going to have problems and it's going to have bugs and you're just going to fix them on the fly. But with a blockchain engineer, you can't have that mentality because once you ship your software, if there is a bug, generally because these applications we're shipping deal with people's money or they become monetized very quickly, if there is a bug, someone is going to exploit it and someone is going to take that money and someone's going to, you know, steal money from someone else. Uh, These bugs, if they get exploited, are very hard, usually impossible to unroll and undo and and sort of fix in post. So you have to get it right on the first go. And that can be very strongly represented in some of the best practices in our industry. So when I was working outside the blockchain space, audit was something that was kind of reserved maybe for processes. I mean, you might get a third-party auditor to come in to review the processes that you had in your team to make sure that you were compliant with certain regulations. But very rarely was code directly audited. And, and part of that was because code changed so quickly. You know, every week you're shipping something. But in the blockchain space, it's an absolute must. You often get multiple audits before you put any code into production. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting distinction in the way that you work, right? It's You can't afford to make mistakes, right? You have to that's why you have like, um, what I've noticed is a lot more focus on QA and auditing. Uh, I wasn't aware of the fact that there's no like, was technical auditing not a thing before blockchain? Oh, it definitely was. Yeah, it definitely was. You know, but not other... as prevalent and perhaps um, maybe in the finance sector more than like, you know, oh, definitely. I mean, perhaps in the finance sector, in the startups that I worked, new people in that were in the financial space, even some of the health data spaces, audits didn't occur at the code level. So they didn't like look at the code that you planted. They just kind of relied on your tests and your processes. So like, you know, there might be a set of processes that you had to have in place for you have to have a QA engineer. And those are how you meet standards often. And but yeah, in the, in the blockchain space, every line of code that you write is highly scrutinized both internally and kind of in line with that, being open source is a must. 
the whole world being able to look at your code so that they can tell what's what, alert you if there's an issue. A thousand eyes is better than one. Can you speak to that a little bit before we dive into the role? Like what is open source and uh, how does that play a role in the way that you work, you know, as being an open source dev versus a uh, someone who's not doing open source stuff? I mean, so this kind of open source has multiple different layers. I think that one of the first distinctions that gets made is, is the code publicly viewable? Or is it not? Um, if it is publicly viewable, then there are other questions such as, am I allowed to copy it? Am I allowed to use it? Under what conditions can I use it, et cetera? And that's a whole topic and it's its, its own thing. But the most important part in this conversation, relevance of security is that first bit is, can I view the code? And the reason it, it's kind of a big trade-off because obviously if there's a bug in the code, you would like people to not to be able to see it because you don't know who's going to see it and you don't know if they're going to leverage it for bad or if they're going to see it and they're going to notify you. So you're kind of trusting people in the open source community are going to view this bug, people are going to see it and they can report it faithfully and they're going to be good actors. And so you have to have incentives that you have to say, well, if you find a bug, you know, we'll give you a million dollars if you report it to us privately and so we can fix it quietly, potentially have a chance of mitigating it before it becomes publicly known instead of stealing. And, and so even if you could steal maybe $10 million with a bug, it's probably better to report it and get $1 million legally than <laughs> just to get you know, 10x that, but illegally and you have to worry laundering, being a criminal, obviously not desirable. The most people. Yeah, for most people. <laughs> well, I say for most people because there are hundreds, of, if not billions already, of dollars that have been directly stolen in a very criminal fashion in the blockchain yeah, space. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's a good answer. I think that really clarifies the whole open source and, and what it means to be a blockchain dev or even an open source dev compared to someone who's just a dev at, say, a company that keeps all their code and text with under wraps and that need to really show anyone. I'd love for you to tell me what a typical week looks like at work. And then I'll do my best to try and like break that down into like, say, units of work that we could take away. Sure. Yeah. It's probably not too different from a standard software engineer. So at the, at the beginning of our week, well, we have two teams and they do this at different times, but at the beginning of the week, go through a retro where we basically review the work that we did last week and look at the work that's coming up in the next week. Um, every two weeks, this retro is like a much bigger thing, you know, a whole hour out of it. In the intermediary weeks, it's kind of just like a little check-in, but essentially that's just a, yeah, to make sure that the tasks that we've allocated are on track and if they're not, that we can sort of reassess them so that if something's taking longer than we expected, which is not not atypical, then you have the chance to react to that. If there's work later down the line that needs to be adjusted, deadlines need to be adjusted, you know, business and uh, public communications might need to react. So it's a good chance to just do that. And then also just to make sure that everyone is aware of what they're willing to be working on. Easy to say, oh, I'd like you to add this feature. But sometimes you can get to that retro and someone says, well, I don't really understand what that feature is, or I think it's a little bit ambiguous. And that's a good chance to clarify those ambiguities, or at least mark them as being ambiguous. And then off the call, the lead developer and that, uh, the relevant individuals can get together and hash it out. We like to take as much stuff offline as we can, what we call offline. So take it away from a group meeting just to keep the group meetings as short as possible. So throughout the rest of the sort of next day or two after that, people generally just dive into their tasks. They start doing development or they start doing design sessions with their lead developer where they will work through the feature, figure out how we want it to be implemented. Because often you can find something many, many different ways. And there is, you know, and so we'll go through, do those design sessions, document them, we can work on them. And typically sort of when we build a feature, the way that it progresses over its lifetime is that we do a little bit of pre-documentation, we do some development, we sort of implement the feature, and we build a very basic set of tests that show that the feature essentially does kind of what it's meant. And then we actually hand it off to someone else, and they do more thorough testing. Um, and that's actually a really important thing for us is to get someone else who didn't write the code to test it, because that kind of ensures that the documentation is up to a certain standard, and also means that this person is not going to be kind of biased in their testing, even just like subconsciously biased. And then 
we at the end of the week we demonstrate the work that we've been up to. So we we get together in the office or over Zoom calls and we kind of show off the most interesting work that we did that week, the latest release that we published. That's a really good opportunity to sort of like celebrate our successes, ask questions. We try to avoid any critiquing during that period because it's really just a chance to show off you know the intellectual endeavors you've been working on over the last week or two. And then on the retros, we can go back and be critical and say, well, I think this could have been improved or done better, or what have you. Yeah, and I guess between those, in the days, we do what are called YTVs, which we stands for yesterday, today, and blocked, where you just give a quick summary worked on yesterday, what you are planning on working on today, and what you're currently blocked on, and who you think might be able to help you with that. So, for example, you might say, I want to push this feature in the front end, but you know the relevant feature is not available on the back end yet, so I'm, I'm kind of blocked on this. Can the back end developer hurry up, please? This kind of thing. That's kind of a typical week. I guess the more blockchain stuff comes in in a bit more of an ad hoc way. So we, we try to make at least one day a month where everyone gets a chance to not work on the core stuff that we're working on and instead go to do some research on what's happening in the space because the space moves so quickly every month. There's a new product, a new set of libraries, a new idea, a new economic concept. And so that's a really good opportunity for people to go away and learn about those. And I, I think those are important in traditional engineering as well, but I think their frequency is so much more important in the blockchain space because things move so quickly because it is still a very young space and lots of people are exploring. I'd say that's probably the, the biggest thing other than, I guess, <laughs> before we ship stuff to production, we have to hand it off to a third people. What is yeah, awesome. Can we add a little bit more context to, to some of this stuff? So you said that you were you know, working on a particular feature when you're actually getting down and doing, can you add context as to like, what might be your overall project that you're working on, whether it be a deck, you can add the detail there. And then, you know, what's an example of a feature you might be working on as a as an engineer that week? Sure. So I can give you a concrete example of something that I was just discussing with maybe half an hour ago. So one of the things that I was allocated on last week was going, reviewing the code base and identifying places where bad state could happen if the software crashed unexpectedly. And even just that process is something that you typically don't care about as a traditional software engineer nearly as much. Because if something does happen, you can kind of go in and you've got manual control over everything and so you can kind of reset things how you want. But in the blockchain space, because your project, your code is being run by tens of thousands of people, you obviously can't get all of those thousands of people to deploy fix or do something in synchrony to recover state. So you have to get it right up front. So last week I was reviewing that. And Can you I quickly add like what state is? Yeah, sure. So a, a great example is imagine if you have a bunch of questions that you have to answer, right? Um, a list of 10 questions and you get these 10 questions in chunks, right? So every now and then you get a chunk of questions, a page of questions, let's say a dozen. And you go through and you answer them all and you put that page in the filing cabinet for later. What happens if you get halfway through and then you fall asleep? And then you wake back up. Now, obviously, in the physical world, you just keep writing and you carry on. But in the digital world, where does that piece of paper go that you were answering questions on uh, when you crashed, right? Does it just disappear? And if it does disappear, and if I recover them, what if I was halfway through answering and now my answers don't make any sense because the world has changed since I've crashed and now my answers are different. And so I've answered the page, the first half of the page based on how the world was an hour ago and the second half of the page based on how the world is now. That's very inconsistent. Or even worse, maybe I, I answer half of them and then I just put the file away when I crash and then I wake back up and I'm like, cool, next set of questions, please. And I've actually not answered the whole thing. So there's all these different ways and these batches of things that you have to do. Obviously, when you get a batch of work, you're going to go through each item one by one. But if you don't finish the whole batch before you crash, 
how do you recover? Do you start again? How do you make sure that you didn't lose the batch? You pick up where you left off. There's all these different options. And it gets really complicated when it doesn't do one batch, 12 batches at different times, anywhere between zero and 100 questions. They, they affect each other and they start getting entangled and it starts getting very, very complicated. Yeah, and I that assume that, that that issue is a little bit more difficult when it comes to a decentralized or blockchain system compared to a centralized system, right? Yeah, and, and then part of that is because this software is being run by people that you don't know what their technical skill level is either. So they might be running it on their computer and then they just might spill some coffee on the computer and the computer catches fire. Well, in a traditional software engineer's world, that's not too much of a concern. That's, you know. Yeah. You as an engineer, given this problem, right? Um, can you also add perhaps like, you know, what is the sort of product you're working on in this case? Like, can you even yeah. give like higher context? It's like, you know, you're working on this particular problem and also maybe talk to the fact that like you're given a problem rather than work on this feature. Because as an engineer, you're solving problems rather than say a developer or like, you know, someone who's just writing code, you know, told exactly yeah. what to do, right? I um, think that depends yeah. on your seniority. Sort of more junior you are, the more likely you are to get a task basically for this. And typically for us, that might be write this test, a sorting algorithm. I want you to write a test that proves that the sorting algorithm doesn't prove, but gives us confidence that the sorting algorithm is correct. Obviously, that can range in complexity from sorting algorithm to some more complicated component. But then as you go and you get more senior, you start getting less things to solve and working out what needs to be solved. So this was very much a workout what needs to be solved from. Concretely, what I had to do was read through, look at the different places where the, if the system crashed, it would be bad, document all of those in a big document, and then have a look at that and say, what could we build that would fix this or make it easier? To? And then I laid out a design document, which was essentially, I think this is the kind of software we could build that would solve this problem. And we would have these features. It would have to guarantee these kinds of things. And I think these are the kinds of functions that might exist, or these are the kinds of types that might exist. And this is how I think it would integrate with our existing system. And I think this is how we would have to go through to upgrade our current system to use it. Functions that we'd have to change, things we'd have to rename, the bits of logic that we'd have to move from this component to that component. This week, we're now going to drill into that. We're going to go ahead and you know, obviously, if I've done a good job, <laughs> then the implementation will look a lot like the design that I put forward. If I've missed something, then we might get halfway through and say, this is actually a much harder problem than we initially thought. And so we might need more time to decide to abandon it. If you're a junior dev, you're much more likely to be sort of more towards the end of that process where we've come up with a design, discovered a problem, we've come up with a design to fix it. We've broken that design down into as many sensible, coherent parts as we can. And you might be given a coherent part to test. You might be given a coherent part to document, or you might be given a coherent part to actually implement. And then the more senior you are, the more, I guess, high level things get, the more you move into the sort of design space and you start developers telling them what you think they should be on and also training and reviewing their work to make sure they're solving this problem in the way you thought they should. And sometimes that can actually be more work. And there's this temptation where a seniority developer with people working underneath you there's this temptation to say, well, I could write this function in an hour, uh, but it's going to take me two hours to review my junior developer's implementation and iterate on the implementation, say feedback, and then they're going to go make a change, give it back to me, and then I have to review it again, and so on and so forth. The point is that that's worth doing the junior developer, learn and get better and start becoming more independent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you answered this, but like, can you run me through, like, say, three examples of companies or products you would be building as a blockchain engineer, like from a very high level? Sure. So one of the most famous pieces of software in the blockchain space right now is so Uniswap is uh, an application that allows you to exchange one type of crypto asset for another type of crypto asset, very simply. And this is a what we call a smart contract, a fancy word program or piece of software that runs on the blockchain. Now, because it runs on the blockchain, once they deploy it, that is it. No fixes, no upgrades, no changes. 
and no control. So the people who built it and put it out there have zero control of the system. So they, they really had to get it right on the, on the first go. Luckily for Uniswap, it's a relatively simple application. No bugs have found. It's been running smoothly for years now. And another example is a lending platform. So instead of, I mean, there are lots of different ones. The one I'm thinking of particularly is called Compound, which is where you can put your assets into this program and then other people can borrow those assets from the program and then pay interest on borrowing those assets and then return them in the future. But this is much more complicated because it has to look at different oracles to understand what the price relationship between things is. So, you know, if you're borrowing ETH versus borrowing Bitcoin, how do we put that into one notional currency, let's say US dollar? So you need to be able to pull that price data from somewhere. And Compound's also more complicated because it actually does allow itself to be upgraded, but it does so in a way that's still not in control of the original developers. So they actually create a, a token, which is you can kind of think of like as shares of a company and they distribute those to people who use the platform. And then those people vote on changes and upgrades they want to see either happen or not happen. And so obviously that becomes much more complicated because you need to have built the first version of Compound that was ever built had to be built in a way that it could be upgraded in the future through this voting mechanism. And then every single time you want to put an upgrade out, you have to go through the process of building it, documenting it, getting it audited, presenting it to the community, and then the community voting yes or no on whether they want to see it added. But then as a third example, you could also be, both of those are products in a very traditional sense. They have users, money moves through them, but you could also be developing a blockchain itself. So, you know, Ethereum is the second biggest blockchain project out there, certainly much more complicated than Bitcoin. And people have to build Ethereum. Someone has to actually develop that. And there's a team called the Ethereum core development team. And that's what they do. They get funded by the ETH Foundation and their day job is to identify ways to make the Ethereum blockchain better. And this is kind of complicated for them because you can make a blockchain better without fundamentally changing what it's doing. Maybe you just make what it's doing a bit faster, a bit more efficient to run. Maybe you're fixing a bug, but changing how Ethereum works is a community-driven endeavor. And so you might have this cool idea where you say, I think we should fundamentally change how Ethereum works because I think it would be better if it worked like this. You actually have to get buy-in from tens of thousands of people and hundreds of projects before that is even something you could consider building and doing. So they have a process called EIPs, Ethereum Improvement Protocol uh, Proposals. And this is a sort of semi-formal process through which the core development community says, we want to make these changes to Ethereum that are sort of fundamental changes that actually change how the blockchain works in quite a significant way. So we want feedback from the community. We want to see some buy-in before we put in the effort to build. Their jobs are very complicated because they have to think about an extreme amount of backwards compatibility. So when they produce an upgrade, if you've got 10,000 people running your software, I can speak from experience that it's very hard to get everyone to upgrade their software. And so half of the people might end up running this new upgrade and the other half might not. So you have to make sure that they can all still coherently work together to form one network, even if some of them have new features and some don't. So those are the three kind of examples, I suppose. Yeah, awesome. I love how, um, you know, as you sort of went through this sort of audio class, like towards the end, you started explaining it a lot simpler. So um, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> Those examples are really easy to digest. So just cognizant of time. So let's run through these like last couple of questions. Pros, cons of the job? Like what are the best parts? What are the worst parts? The best parts are that you get to work the absolute edge. Every day you're interacting with something new. A lot of the time you get to build stuff from scratch simply because you have to build stuff from scratch because it just doesn't exist. And that can be very fitting for an engineer. Cons of the job, you're dealing with people's money and you might try to convince people, don't put your life savings into this application because you know, there might be bugs. But people will. And if you've made a mistake, people will lose their livelihoods. In extreme cases, some people will even lose their lives over having their life savings. Um, and that is obviously very stressful. Makes sense. It's a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders. Yeah. yeah. So off the back of that, 
you know, what kind of traits do you find that the most successful blockchain engineers have? And I'm also curious like for you to talk about, I think most of the engineers you've hired were just plain software engineers and you reskilled them into blockchain. I think that's what most people are doing. So in that case, like what did it actually take for them to go from software to blockchain? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it takes someone with attention to detail. You have to be very detail oriented because again, the tiniest little mistake causes a catastrophic failure for some people. So you have to be willing to be very detail oriented, but at the same time, you have to be willing to be brave and do things that might make you uncomfortable because you're never going to be comfortable looking at your program and saying, oh, this thing has a billion dollars inside of it. That's never going to feel comfortable. You have to be willing to take that step at some point. So you have to be a mix of sort of like very gung-ho, but also very careful and very yeah, detail-oriented. Reskill people. The community is very fortunate that these auditing companies have done a very good public service and they've published a lot of the best practices, a lot of the common mistakes, and developed a lot of different tutorials. So we get all of our developers to go through those tutorials. And so they can see what are the common mistakes people make when they're programming these special smart contracts. What are the kinds of things that you should look out for? What are the things you're thinking about when you do a development? And then, of course, we get people that we've previously skilled to work very closely with these engineers over the course of you know the first few months that they're with us. They do a lot of pair programming where instead of one person writing code by themselves and getting it reviewed, two people will be on a call together and have like a live programming environment, kind of like, you know, like a Google Doc for code <laughs> where they'll both be working on code together directly so that people with experience can sort of common mistakes that this person's making. Yeah. Awesome. Makes sense. And uh, final thing for you is just uh, any sort of last minute tips or advice for someone who's interested in becoming a blockchain engineer? Yeah. If you're interested in becoming a blockchain engineer, there are so many tutorials out there on how to get started. There's lots of ways to test and build programs just for fun, you know, that aren't going to use a lot of, you know, that aren't going to accidentally end up with bunches of people in the wild putting their money into it. You can use test networks and stuff like this. So go try those out. Build something very simple and follow those tutorials because it feel very magical. And then when you deploy your first program to the blockchain, a lot of that magic gets dispelled. But at the same time, you get this huge excitement of, oh my God, what else can I do? It's almost like discovering programming again for the second time and getting that rush and getting that excitement. And of course, if you, if you really are serious about going into the blockchain space, REM Project is always hiring, so you can always reach out to us. Try your luck. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Mom. Thanks, AJ.